Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Bethnal Green service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. We are right in the middle of a new sermon series on generosity uh, as we gear up to next Sunday, which is our big gift day. We're hoping to raise £200,000 across all five services at Christchurch London. Uh, uh, it's really exciting. We're, uh, both, we're doing that both to invest in what we're already doing, um, but also to help uh, fund some of the new things we want to start, like an East Morning service later in this year. Uh, and just to say at the start of this talk, so this series is only going to be three talks. This is the second one. I'm, I'm aware that there can be some awkwardness when we talk about money. It can, ju- it can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable or an invasion of our privacy. Uh, and it might just be me. It might be a British thing. It might be both. Uh, but there seems to be something that makes us feel a little bit off or we seem to have a comment on it when we do. Uh, in fact, when we're doing a new teaching series, often we're like, awaken, like revival. God's going to bring revival. It's going to be great. And then a series on generosity, we might be more like, well, they can find out when they come. We'll just uh, we'll keep it a bit quieter. That's not what we did, by the way. But that can be the temptation because there can be this awkwardness. In fact, a study was conducted where 2,000 people were asked what they hate talking about the most. Fifth was politics, fourth was religion, third was sex, second was savings, and first was debt. Um, And so this evening, I'll be talking about three out of five of those things, so we're in for a great night. Uh, And if you're hoping the third one is sex, it's not. Uh, But before we look at what Jesus has to say about money, let me just set the scene. Uh, We live in a world, as I'm sure you're aware, that revolves around money. In fact, in many ways, our whole lives have been geared towards feeding that system. Uh, We measure so much of our success, our status, our life's goals, our desires uh, for the future by how much money will come our way. And from a really young age, this has been drilled into, into us, whether we are aware of it or not. In so many ways, we see the world through the eyes of economics and finance. Malcolm Harris, who's an American journalist, argues that our life has been built around what he calls human capital, an economic idea that refers to investing in something to make it more productive. And in this case, the something is yourself, is you. You invest in yourself to make yourself more productive and as useful as you can be to our economic system. And he argues that our whole upbringing has been built around this idea, from our education to even things like music lessons and organized sports and volunteering and taking up unpaid internships or work experience. It's all built around this idea that if we invest in ourselves, then it will pay off with a great job wealth and prosperity. And our education is particularly built around this. For example, it's why uh, when uh, funding gets cut for education, uh, usually things like the arts get the brunt of it uh, because they're, I guess, a less safe investment and it won't pay off as financially as maybe other subjects in the long run or with a safer career in the long run. Now, what I'm not saying is that uh, planning for the future or education are bad things. Um, They are very, very good things. Uh, But the result of being brought up in this environment that is designed uh, to make you both useful, useful and wealthy means that when things don't work out the way we've been told they will, that can have a huge impact on our life, even our mental health or our relationships, and particularly how we see ourselves. I didn't make it, or I didn't measure up, or I'm not as good as this person, or I'll never never be able to do that. It affects everything. And to make things worse, or even more challenging, uh, we live in a world that is bent around or bent towards commercialism. In order for our uh, economy to work, we need to buy stuff. 
And so we're bombarded with, with adverts, as I'm sure you're aware, showing us what we don't have and why we need it and why our life won't be complete until we have this new thing. And our culture is obsessed and in love with money, wealth, and prosperity, and commercialism is designed to indulge that obsession. So we've been brought up to invest in ourselves, told that investment will pay off financially, sold on the dream that we can change the world, but now we find ourselves in this cultural moment where there simply aren't enough jobs to go around. Globalization has meant that jobs have spread across the world, making competition much harder. And with the introduction of automation and the gig economy, we don't get the rewards we've spent all this time investing in and in belief that we deserve. And there's loads of statistics on this, but um, I won't go into it today, but millennials will be the first generation to grow up poorer than their parents' generation. And statistically, most of, most of us blame our parents' generation for that. Happy? Cheered up? It's going to be great. It's going to be a great night. But here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, I don't think this should, be, should leave us feeling pessimistic. I actually think the opposite is true. And throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, there is a narrative about how we should view, use, and think about money that I think is utterly life-changing, but also really challenging. Whatever your background, whatever economic system you were brought up in, whether you consider yourself rich or poor, whether you're employed or unemployed, what Jesus has to teach us about money is very good news. And so my aim for today is this. Firstly, that we all see with clarity whether money has a higher influence on our life than it deserves. And secondly, that being a generous community is both completely freeing for us and at the same time has the potential to be one of the most powerful ways we can show the world who Jesus is and what he has done. And I've actually been really surprised at how excited I've been over this series, uh, this offering and this talk. Uh, in fact, when we first decided we were going to do this, the kind of excitement came pretty much straight away, which is kind of surprising for a lot of reasons. But I feel like God is starting to put this vision on my heart about how we, the Bethnal Green Service, have the opportunity to live like an alternative community, right at the heart in this city, obsessed with money, where we are free from that idol, from the idol of money and commercialism and this desire to accumulate more and more and instead be free, not just in our hearts, but free to give and be generous with what we have. So what does Jesus have to say about this? Uh, and we're going to read uh, probably the most famous teaching on money, uh, where Jesus gives us three short proverbs on money, and you'll find it in Matthew 6, and we'll read from verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus sets up this teaching with a really simple challenge. Who do you love? And to do this, he uses this metaphor of the heart to, uh, to provoke that question. And throughout scripture, the heart is used to describe our deepest, most fundamental longings and desires. And the, in the ancient world, it was the, the way of portraying the core of who a person was. It's what we trust in most. It's what we love the most and what we are inclined toward. And we're told that God ignores the outward appearance and looks straight and directly at the heart. It drives our actions and our thoughts. 
I remember when I was about 11 years old uh, watching Arsenal play Liverpool at home. Uh, I'm an Arsenal fan. And there was this moment in the... I don't know why it's funny. Uh, there was this moment in the match where Liverpool striker Robbie Fowler, he um, fell over in the penalty box and the ref gave a penalty. And all the players, all the Arsenal players complained and saying it's not a penalty. And Robbie Fowler, to his credit, he got up and said, it wasn't a penalty, I fell over, it was an accident, um, it shouldn't be a penalty, but the ref didn't listen and the penalty was given. And what happened next was pretty remarkable. Fowler himself took the penalty, and it seemed to me that he made the, the penalty really easy and simple for David Seaman, the legendary goalkeeper, to save. He tapped it really lightly, and Seaman, uh, Seaman saved it. But David Seaman, instead of catching the ball, he kind of just pushed it out right into the path of Jason McAteer, another Liverpool player who just had to tap the ball into the empty net, scoring the most unjust goal I'd ever seen in my short 11 years. I was outraged, livid, distraught, and I stood up and I decided that the only way I could respond to this injustice was to run away from home. <laughs> this is a true story. So I walked out the door, uh, began to walk down the drive, closely followed by my sister Esther, who followed me everywhere in those days. <laughs> You'd be surprised to hear that. Um, and uh, I, after a while, I got a bit cold and went back in the house, so did Esther, and I got over it. Uh, but that, in all seriousness, that's just a really extreme, sorry Esther, a really extreme and very immature example of what can happen when we bend our heart towards things in this world that will ultimately let us down. When moths and vermin get in and destroy, or thieves can break in and steal, just like Jason McAteer stole that goal, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. But it has the potential to impact our whole life. And so if money or possessions have our heart, when they get taken away, well, like we're seeing in our culture today, we don't get what we think we deserve or have been told we'll get, it can have a really big effect on us and leave, uh, leave us feeling bitter and without hope. But why is it so easy to love money? Why is it such a powerful force in our lives? I think there are three things. It gives, it gives us a false sense of security, of safety, and of status. We think it brings us safety and security, but that will create in us an over-reliance on money that will make us fear losing it. And if we ever do lose it, it will bring disaster. And if we think that money brings us status, we'll look down on those who have less and we'll resent those who have more. And so if we build our safety, security and status on money, the idea of generosity is so hard to contemplate because it's like giving away a piece of ourselves one pound at a time. We think that money elevates us and gives us these things, but in reality, that it makes us a slave. So how do we figure out if money has any grip on our heart? How do we know what we love? And this is where the next proverb comes in, so let's just reread it. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now you might hear that or read that and think, how on earth does that relate to money? There is no mention of money at all, yet it must have something to teach us on this subject because it's sandwiched between these two very clear teachings on money, so that it must be relevant in some way. And in order to dig deeper into this, there's just a couple of things to note. Firstly, and Dave mentioned this last week, Jesus talks about money all of the time. In fact, he talks about money more than anything else other than the kingdom of God. So he clearly thinks it's important for us to understand our relationship to money and whether, and whether or not money has any, uh, I guess, uh, grip on our heart in an unhealthy way. And then secondly, the second thing to note is that in Luke 12, Jesus gives us this extra warning when it comes to greed. He says, watch out. 
Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. So why does Jesus talk so much about money and then give us a kind of a specific warning when it comes to greed? Why does he say we need to be on our guard and how does this relate to the I? Here's what I think is going on. If you are in love with money, if you love money, it's really difficult to know if you love money. And by using this metaphor of the eye, he's saying that if your eye is unhealthy, your view of the world will be distorted and you won't know what you can't see. And in the context of money, if how you see the world is unhealthy, it will be really hard to tell whether you're greedy. And it seems to, to me that Jesus singles this out, this, this, I guess, sin out, the sin of greed out more than other sins. And Tim Keller uses this analogy where he said with something like adultery, you know, you, don't, you know you're committing adultery. You don't kind of just suddenly realize, oh my gosh, that's not my wife. Like it's very blatant and very obvious. But with greed, it's way more subtle and way harder to see whether or not you are greedy. The love of money seems to have the unique ability to stop us from asking tough questions about how we live our life. Which is why Jesus gives us this extra warning and why I think he talks about it so much. It just has this unique ability to grip our heart more than anything else. And perhaps money has a hold of our heart and we're not even aware of it because it has the ability to make our eye unhealthy and change how we see the world and ourselves. So what does a healthy eye look like? Well, the Greek word that's used for healthy in this passage is really helpful in understanding what Jesus is saying. The Greek word is this word haplos, which literally means without folds and refers to single, undivided and clear focus. And so if our eye is healthy, our focus will be clear and undivided. But if our eye is unhealthy, our focus will be divided. We might be trying to live like Jesus, but it will be so much harder to discern our weakness and our blind spots. And it also has this potential to stop us from being a witness to the world around us. And this passage is taken from uh, the famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this is actually not the first time that Jesus has referenced a, a lamp in that sermon. In the chapter previously, in Matthew 5, he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do, pe- neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So for people listening to Jesus, I don't think there'd be any doubt that he is using the same metaphor here. Jesus says in chapter five that we are to be like a lamp and that we're to let our light shine before others so that they will see our good deeds and glorify God. And then he warns us that greed has the potential to put our light out. He's creating a visual picture to link our good deeds directly with money. And of course, there are other aspects that come into what Jesus talks about good deeds, but I think money is a really big part of this. And for me, that is hugely challenging, like really, really challenging. This combination between what we do of our money and how we witness to the world, how we witness about Jesus. And it leads straight into this final proverb. So let's just quickly remind ourselves, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, every time I've read that passage, I've read it in this way. Don't make money your God, make God your God. And uh, now that is true, and I would totally agree with that. Um, But I don't know what kind of person you think of when you think about someone who might be greedy. Uh, Chances are they'll look something like this. Like that's the kind of person we think of when, it, uh, when we think of someone who might be a slave to money. But the problem with that interpretation of this verse is that it has the danger of stopping us from looking at our own heart and asking ourselves some tough questions. 
We don't look like the person we think serves money. And so it can be really easy to skip over these passages without giving them the attention that they, or, that they deserve or applying them to our lives. But I think Jesus is being a lot more challenging than simply saying we shouldn't be a slave to money. And let's just compare the first and last sentence together. Uh, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And what is Jesus saying here? So in the previous proverb, he's just used this word haplos, which means single, undivided, focus. I think what he's saying is that often, even those of us who are genuinely trying to follow Jesus, in reality, we can be trying to serve money at the same time, whether we realize it or not. And so Jesus is bringing this challenge and saying, you cannot, bring, you cannot serve both at the same time. And throughout these passages, there's this clear journey. First, he sets up this, sets up this question, who do you love? Where is your treasure? Then he talks about the eye. Is your eye healthy? Are you really seeing clearly when it comes to this issue? And now he warns us that we cannot serve God and money at the same time because both demand our whole heart. And Jesus, said this, and Jesus says that if God is your true master, you'll hate even the idea of being a slave to money and so it will have no grip on your heart or no control in your life. And the idea of being generous and giving your money away doesn't scare you and you delight to do it even because you're not here to build earthly treasure. But if you're a slave to money, you'll hate the idea of being prepared to give everything up, including your money, to follow him. And it just reminds me of the rich young ruler when Jesus says to him, um, if you want to follow me, go and give everything up, all you have up, and follow me. And he just couldn't do it. I think he's the kind of perfect example or the person that I'm reminded of when I think about someone who's trying genuinely to serve Jesus, but is kind of gripped by this uh, kind of spirit of serving money. And so this passage in Matthew 6 is all about awareness and choice. Who do we love? How do we see the world? And who do we serve? And this has been really, really challenging for me. In my previous job, we'd regularly go out for coffee or, or for a drink after work, and usually someone would just get uh, the round in and, and get the, kind of the whole, all of the drinks at one time. And uh, I realized that what I was doing was I was mentally counting in my head how many times I got the round in and whether someone else owed me a drink. So I go to the pub and I would just kind of stand there waiting, expecting someone to offer me a drink because, you know, I'm not getting it. I got the last one. And I became this person that I didn't want to be. I became someone who was entitled and generous and it affected how I saw my friends. And another more recent example, as many of you know, we've been redecorating our flat. And as we've been going through that process of preparing and painting and sanding, and sanding is of the devil, by the way, just, just, just to say, um, I realized that I, I would become uncharacteristically frustrated if things didn't go the way I wanted or didn't turn out the way I wanted. You know, if I bought the wrong drill bit or uh, if it took longer than I expected or just some kind of small issue, it would have this massive effect on my uh, character and my mood. And it created a reaction in me that I didn't like. And as I've been looking at these passages particularly, there's been this realization in my own heart that am I putting way too much of my security in my home, in my earthly treasure? Have I been placing my treasure in the place where I live instead of in God? And this has been really challenging for me. How about you? Does the security that money or the status that money brings created an idol in your heart that you need to root out? Do we find it easier to spend money on ourselves than we do to give it away to others? Do we rely too much on the security that our savings account might bring us? And please, please hear my heart on this. I don't want to seem judgmental or, 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 or say judgment over you because my story hopefully just shows you how just easy and, and difficult this thing can be. 
So what would it look like if we lived in a way that Jesus had our whole heart? And how does this compare to a life that is a slave to money? And I want to suggest that there are three big things or three big differences uh, that we can cultivate in our own lives if we want to be free from the grip of money and serve Jesus wholeheartedly. And the first one is freedom over anxiety. And this is probably the most significant way of knowing whether money has gripped your heart in any way. Uh, Does the thought about of being generous creating you anxiety or worry or fear? Money will either have a tight grip over us or we can have a loose grip on money, but both are incredibly powerful. One will leave you feeling trapped and the other will leave you feeling free. Freed from the grip of money, but completely free to give it away as well. And Jesus finishes this teaching on money with, I think, one of the most beautiful passages of scripture in the Gospels. Directly after he says, you cannot serve God and money, he then goes on to say this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall I eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I love this passage because he, Jesus, he acknowledges both the importance of earthly things, but at the same time, he calls us to trust completely in him first, to place our hope and our security in him before the treasures of this world. And he acknowledges that these things are important, but that they're not ultimate. Makoto Fujimara, who's a Japanese-American artist, painted this amazing piece called Consider the Lilies based on this passage. And it just reminds us of how beautiful this world is, how beautiful God has created this world to be. Yet we as God's people made in his image are of greater importance to him. And that should leave us or leave us without this grip of anxiety over our lives. And if you struggle to make Jesus your ultimate treasure, know that you are his 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Knowing how Jesus sees you and what he did for you is the first step in making him your ultimate treasure. He looks at you and despite all the pain and suffering he endured for your sake, to him you are worth it because you are his treasure, his special possession and that is the best way to orientate your heart towards him and that has the power not only to free you from the power of money but also from the anxiety that comes with relying on money and the worries of this life and just to say if money is a real concern for you know that there is safety here for you in this community the church is a body is a family we're a community so please don't struggle alone speak to a friend or your connect group leader or speak to myself we'd love to to chat and help in any way don't feel ashamed or feel like you're the only one if our ultimate hope and the goal for our life 
is to follow Jesus and his plan for us that has the power to lift the burden of our anxiety and create freedom, uh, to not measure our, ourselves by our salary or by our bank balance. And Richard Foster wrote this in a book called The Celebration of Discipline, which is probably one of the books that's had the biggest influence on my life. He says this, freedom from anxiety is characterized by three inner attitudes. If what we have, we receive as a gift. And if what we have is to be cared for by God, and if what we have is available to others, then we will possess freedom from anxiety. This is the inward reality of simplicity. However, if what we believe we have, sorry, if, however, if what we have, we believe we have got, and if what we have, we believe we must hold on to, and if what we have is not available to others, then we will live in anxiety. If you feel like the status, security, and safety that money brings has got a hold of you, and you live in this perpetual state of anxiety when it comes to money, we would love to pray for you tonight. So whether you're living in freedom or anxiety in this, on this issue, that is just a really good way to know, or indicator to know whether money has gripped your heart uh, and you're kind of wholeheartedly following that rather than Jesus. So the first one, freedom over anxiety. The second one, simplicity over Excess. So rather than this being an indicator for your heart, this is something that we can all cultivate and grow both in our uh, generosity, but also in keeping Jesus as the sole focus for our heart. And uh, historically, simplicity is a spiritual practice or discipline that in many ways the church, particularly in the West, has neglected. And Foster describes simplicity as a life of joyful unconcern for possessions. And, and then again, in Celebration of Discipline, he says, we crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like harsh but kind of true. Uh, we are made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they are worn out. The media has convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. It's time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit, mammon meaning kind of the worship of money, the mammon spirit within ourselves, nor will we desire Christian simplicity. And this was written, I think, nearly 40 years ago now. So it's like so much more true. It feels way more true now than probably back then. Uh, and where we decide to spend our money uh, is a really huge topic, not one that we have a huge amount of time to go into today, but I know that buying clothes and food that are ethically made and sustainably sourced is really important to many of you, which is great. Uh, but this is not just how we spend our money, but our, our posture towards our things and our possessions in general. And Dee and I have uh, recently moved house uh, and I cannot believe how much stuff we just accumulate over time. Uh, we had so much stuff we just never used. We would, uh, in fact, often the only time we touched it was when we were moving from flat to flat. Do you ever find that? You kind of keep something, you put it somewhere, and then you move house a couple of years later and you just pick it up again and put it somewhere else in a new place. That just seemed to be what we were doing. Uh, and I think we've probably given away about a third of our stuff in the last sort of six to eight months. And we just haven't noticed it. We haven't missed it in any way. And it's just amazing that just how much stuff we just accumulate in our, in our life. And this practice of simplicity allows us to understand what possessions are and what they're not in relation to God. And I could talk more about this, but one of the great benefits of simplicity is that in theory, you'll spend, more, uh, you'll spend less money on, on things, on possessions, uh, and have more for my final point. You'd have more for generosity. So finally, generosity over greed. And this is one of the things that uh, I've slowly become more excited about. And I think um, if I'm honest, I feel like God has been speaking to me about this, and which is why I got so excited about the thought of, of sharing on this, speaking on this and this gift day next week. 
Because not only is generosity a privilege, but it is also one of the most powerful ways we can be a blessing, or as Jesus said, a light to the world around us. A couple of months ago, I got to be part of an act of uh, secret generosity where somebody uh, gives someone else a gift and the person on the receiving end doesn't know who it's from. So someone came up to me and said they wanted to give uh, someone in this church a significant financial gift and asked if I could be the one to give it to them uh, so they wouldn't know who was the person who gave it. Uh, And it was just amazing. It was the first time I'd ever got to be part of that and it was just an amazing experience. Uh, I got to approach these people and say that uh, someone would like to give you this gift Um, and I got to sort of see their faces, the gratitude on their faces, and it was just incredible. And there's just something really profound and humbling uh, knowing that they will never know who gave it to them. And ever since that moment, I've just reflected on how rare those things are. That doesn't happen a lot, but it's so special when it does. And I don't know about you, but often when I hear stories of of how someone has had this need, uh, and miraculously there was a gift uh, in the post, or someone gave them some money that met that need, um, usually I think, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if someone gave me some money? I'd love that. Yeah, that'd be good. But you know what I never think? I never imagine myself being the one giving the money. I never ask myself, who are the people in my life that I can bless, that I can be generous to? I, I always want to be the person on the receiving end, not the one giving the money. And maybe you don't think like that at all, and that just shows how much work I've got to do in this area. But stories like this are just incredible and so different to what our culture holds as valuable. We're told to spend our money because we need this, or we must have that, or we must keep up with this trend. Or you should invest your money because it will get you this return. But what if one of the most powerful ways we can bless this city and show God's love around us is to be the most generous people in this city? Yes, we should pray. Yes, we should tell people about Jesus. But what about generosity? Leslie Newbegin, who's a 20th century missionary, he said this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. What if generosity was one of the most powerful ways we have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus? Would you be generous? I shared a few weeks ago uh, our vision for this community. We want to become more like Jesus, this process called formation, uh, and we want to see more and more people come to know the life-changing power of the gospel. We want to live the way of Jesus because not only does it allow us to become the people we were created to be, but at the same time it allows us to become a witness to the person who has changed our life. If the band want to come back up, that'd be great. Uh, And in the Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, a book by a guy called James Martin, uh, he recounts this parable that uh, an Indian Jesuit priest called Anthony de Mello uh, told in order to communicate uh, the truth of the gospel to his Indian culture. And the parable was this. He said, said, The wise man had reached the outskirts of the village and settled down under a tree for the night when a villager came running up and said, The stone, the stone, give me the precious stone. What stone? asked the wise man. Last night, the Lord Shiva appeared to me in the dream, said the villager, and told me that if I went to the outskirts of the village at dusk, I should find a wise man who would give me a precious stone that would make me rich forever. The wise man rummaged in his bag and pulled out a stone. He probably meant this one, he said, as he handed the stone over to the villager. I found it on the forest path some days ago. You can certainly have it. The man gazed at the stone in wonder. It was a diamond, probably the largest diamond in the whole world, for it was as large as a person's head. If it was as large as my head, that's some diamond. Actually, (laughs) he took the diamond and walked away. 
All night he tossed and turned in bed, about uh, unable to sleep. And the next day at the crack of dawn, he woke the wise man and said, give me the wealth that makes it possible for you to give this diamond away so easily. So we think of freedom as the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we, whenever we want it. That's just why we're so drawn to money. We think if we have enough of it, we'll truly be free. But what if, as DeMello's parable suggests, that not being controlled or a slave to money is not only the first step to spiritual freedom, but also has the most powerful, is the most powerful way we can show the treasure that we have, Jesus Christ, to this city. And it doesn't just have to be money. A friend told me this story just this week, and I just wanted to share it, share it with you. I'm going to read the text that she sent. At the end of last year, after hearing a talk on generosity, I felt I should send some flowers to my friend during the week. She sometimes struggles with work and anxiety, and I wanted her to know someone was thinking of her, so I sent, so I sent them anonymously with a short message. Then a few weeks ago, she worked out they were from me, I think through the process of elimination. I admitted they were, and she had said that a couple of days after receiving the flowers, her granddad had died, and that those flowers had made her feel just a bit happier, and that people were thinking of her. I hadn't realized that was the timing when I did it, so clearly the whole thing was a prompt from God, and that God's encouragements towards small acts of generosity can mean more than you know to that person. If we're to reach this city, and if we're to be free to follow Jesus with our whole hearts, we need to firstly recognize whether money has any grip on our heart, like I've kind of, the process I've gone through in the last couple of months. Repent of it and work towards rooting it out and setting our heart fully and undividedly upon Jesus. And I want us to be a community that is deeply committed to London and this call on our lives. And I do have this growing conviction that generosity is going to play a big part in that. And as I've said, I've been immensely challenged on this subject as I've prepared for this talk and this gift day, uh, both in terms of the things that have got hold of my heart, but also because just of the huge opportunity that generosity brings us to share in sharing our faith. So who are the people in your life that you have the opportunity and privilege to be generous towards? And so as we look forward to next Sunday, uh, as we do our uh, big offering, our big gift day, I have no idea what you will give, and I have no idea whether you will give at all. And in fact, I'll never know. But my heart for you is that you get caught up in this vision of the freedom that comes when you follow Jesus and give him every part of your life. And I believe that Jesus is not just asking us to give to a good cause. He's asking us to be the people of the kingdom of God while we're still living in the kingdom of money. And as you think and as you pray about the offering next week, and there's some gift day cards at the back, if, that'll, if that's helpful for you just to remind yourself to pray, you can take them, they're just on the plinth at the back. Um, whatever you decide to give, I just want to encourage you firstly to use this as a chance to get your attitude right towards money. Uh, to use it as a way to free yourself from the grip that money might have on your life. And secondly, know that as you give, you are giving to something far bigger than yourself that we are part of something together as a community and a family and a body, and that we have an opportunity to play our part together in changing this city. Why don't you stand? We're going to worship. And I'm just going to pray for us. We'll just sing a song that speaks about uh, surrender, um, and then, yeah, we'll just worship God. Yeah, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are so generous towards us. Thank you that you are the most generous God and Lord Jesus, I just pray for any of us where, where money might have a hold on our heart. Lord God, would you first reveal it to us? Lord God, would you show us the things in our life that have taken our, our focus and our attention away from you? 
God, would we know the freedom that comes when we live wholeheartedly, focused, undivided, uh, and our whole heart bent towards your will for our lives. Lord Jesus, I just ask that we would be known as a generous community. Whatever we might give, Lord God, I pray that that would be part of who we are, part of the DNA of us as a service. Not that it's in how much we give. Just reminded of the story of the widow who gave such a small amount in comparison to the rich. But what she gave was more, far more valuable to Jesus than, than the amount the other people gave. Just reminded of that story, Lord. And I just ask that even if we feel like we don't have little to offer, God, you tell us that you don't look at outward appearances, but you don't look directly at the heart. And Lord, we want to say that our heart, we are, the desire of our heart is to be single-minded, single-focused on you and your will for our lives. And God, as we think about this gift day next Sunday, Lord, I pray that you be our provider. You provide for all the needs that we have for this church to continue doing what we are doing. And Lord, would you bless us, God? Uh, yeah, Lord Jesus, thank you. Let's worship together.